If you like the work that we produce on this show, support the show and get access to extra content and more at patreon.com backslash Fred Opie show. Live from our studio in Babson Park, Massachusetts, it's the Fred Opie Show, where we unpack history to positively impact the future. I am Fred Opie, your host. Thanks for joining us live or listening to the podcast. Our guest today is a native of Columbus, Ohio, Candace Taylor. She is an author, photographer, curator, and more. Taylor uses a variety of mediums and theories to talk about culture and identity. Her new book, Overground Railroad, looks at black mobility and culture throughout the, through the lens of the Green Book. Candace, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Tell me a hero, a hardship, and a highlight associated with your research and writing Overground Railroad. I'd say the hero is my stepfather, Ron. I start the book out with, with uh, his story. Around the age of 12, he came into my life, and we were never particularly close. I mean, I was a typical, you know, preteen teenager who was just kind of losing my biological father because he kind of abandoned me and disappeared, and I was really angry. And Ron just seemed like a distraction or somebody. I, you know, I was like, you're not going to be my father. Very gentle, but very much a Marine. You know, had this presence about him. He intimidated every boyfriend I think I ever had. But he was he was a, t- a teddy bear. He was very, and he was funny and from the South and told great stories. Once he knew I was doing this Green Book project, really started telling me deeper stories about who he was as a black man growing up in the Jim Crow South. Ron became this father I never had. And so he was a real part of when I was on the road, he would call me all the time. We talked because he was a Marine. He was also in law enforcement. He taught me how to protect myself and carry a knife and a stun gun, uh, poverty stricken communities that um, some of which were not safe. Uh, so I text him every night, let him know where I was. He just became a big part of my, of the process of, gathering the material and then when I sat down to write the book the week before the week I started writing the book he died he was sick before he died but I, I think he knew he was dying about two years before he died when he died I just would sit there on my desk I would just sit there and write and type and just cry every morning because I just I was really grieving I said, but all I can do is write Ron's stories. At the end of that week, I had written a lot of his stories. I was like, oh my God, they're touchstones for every, nearly every chapter in the book. And so all of a sudden, Ron became this narrative thread in the book that I would not have had and I would not have done had he not died. The hero, in the sense that he kind of came, became my guardian angel through the process. And even though, because I knew this book was so important, not for me and my livelihood, but also for him and his stories and, you know, the people that he grew up with and his generation. That, you know, I have to say was the kind of, I just never would have expected that. So he was, 
the hero. What was the hero? We got Ron, which is a beautiful story, by the way. What was a hardship in researching writing a project, and what was a highlight? Yeah, I'd say the hardship was, um, so it was a real blessing to be able to just be on the road, but it was also kind of an existential crisis of not having a real home. And the stress of, because I'm a workaholic and I work 16-hour days, generally, I could scout about 30 sites a day. But it was a rigorous, incredibly crazy schedule. But I knew I only had so much time to finish a field research before I had to start writing the book. And I had a deadline with my publisher. It was a hardship in the sense that there was so much material to gather in such a short period of time. And I find myself in these really difficult neighborhoods where there were lots of murders. I was in the south side of Chicago in this area where 53 people had been shot the weekend I was there. The weekend I was there. Incredibly dangerous. Times in Miami, I'd have to leave early because I did not feel safe. Um, I was lunched at by a mentally ill person, chased by dogs. But thankfully, I was never really physically hurt. Seeing that level of poverty was heartbreaking. I ended up having high blood pressure. I was in and out of the hospital with potential strokes during this time. When I looked at all the, the scars of mass incarceration on these communities, the scars of redlining, of urban renewal, all these different forces that have been enacted mostly by our government, right, over the last 70, 80 years since the Green Book was in publication. I couldn't, I knew that most Americans had not seen the decimation of our culture as black folks, these communities and what had happened to them, the deinvestment in our education system, all of these things that just kind of, that were so visible. And thank God I left my cushy, beautiful office at Harvard to go out and live this, you know, be in these streets and see what was happening because it would have been a very different book had I not done that. It was a hard part of the project, mostly because it was heartbreaking, but the physical endurance that I needed to to do the level amount of, you know, scouting nearly, I think at that time it was like 4,000 sites I scouted throughout the country. That was the hardship. Um, and a highlight. Well, the highlight is, you know, being a, being able to celebrate it now. Everything <laughs> lived through it. The fact that I, you know, that I have this book as representative of it, the book that I'm actually proud of, the fact that, you know, Abrams was my publisher and they did an incredible job, and they let me in on every step of the process. I had a very specific vision of what I thought this book should be, what it should look like. And when I went to Abrams, they presented me with a 16-page proposal, me with what their vision was for this project, and showed me that, you know, because after this book, there'll be a children's book that's based on my manuscript that'll be coming out that I'm doing. But they they were the only ones who said, we see this as, you know, this could be a children's book, ages 9 to 12. The trade book would be, you know, A, B, and C. 
and they I had the option of doing even a third book based on this project that I don't think we're going to do. But, you know, still, it was just at that moment, it was like, wow. And then I could say, okay, I know Abrams makes beautiful books, but I don't want this to be a beautiful art book that feels unattainable. I want it to be the same trim size as like the new Jim Crow or Ta-Nehisi Coates' work. I felt like this needs to sit on the shelf with those kinds of books. What does this relate to today in terms of our struggles with mass incarceration? All of these things that I was really pushing for that were unorthodox, Abrams allowed me to do, supported me. They had me at every stage of the design process. But I was so grateful that they let me do it. So now I have this beautiful book that is a combination of narrative threads of Ron's stories, the history of the Green Book, our history is you know, social black mobility in this country. My photographs of these current Green Book sites and the discussion around what does that mean and what do these communities look like and why does that matter? The highlight is, yeah, I have something I'm proud of. Never really been so excited about any one of my books. The show will be right back. Check out our podcast archive and review the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. The best way to support the podcast is to tell a friend, share the show on Facebook and Twitter, or send them to our website at fredopi.com. Tell me, from the people you learned about in this project, they're no longer alive, so this is the context of the question. If you could have dinner with three people from the research... Which three people would you want to have dinner with and why these three? Jessica Simpson, fierce, fierce civil rights leader. She ran a Green Book site outside of Columbia, South Carolina. And she, I interviewed her niece, Henri Treadwell. She developed a, you know, several NAACP chapters in the state. She was a huge community organizer. She was a fierce civil rights uh, person who just challenged even Democrats within her state. She never fell into a particular party. She was kind of her own force, but people followed her because they believed in her and because she was for the people. They've named a day after her in South Carolina. So she is known there on some level, but I think she should be a household name. Victor Green, the man who created the Green Book, he's kind of an anomaly to me because we know so little about him. He had a seventh grade education and he created something that completely shifted the way people moved and, and lived in the country as black folks. And he gave them access to so many things that they never would have had access to. And uh, he gave them courage to, to take a risk and leave, uh, to either go on vacation or move during the Great Migration or whatever it was. He, he wasn't this political powerhouse that you would think, like somebody like Majeska Simpkins. You know, he was a very dapper gentleman who was, had a lot of class, and his wife, Alma, I would say is my third person who mm-hmm. she was a huge force. I think she was a lot of um, 
because Victor Green still worked as a postal worker when he was producing the Green Book up until his 50s. He retired when he was 52 years old. They were living in Harlem, but he was delivering mail in New Jersey. And when he dies in 1960, Alma takes over the Green Book. She's a publisher. She's the editor. Um, you see there's even the year before that, the whole Green Book operation is run primarily by women. We think it's all by women. There's only one person who has initials. We don't know the gender of that person, but everybody else there on the staff page is, is female. Alma, his wife, I think she was a pivotal force in keeping the Green Book going. And then, of course, obviously, she is the reason why the Green Book continues after Victor dies. She sells it to or passes it on to somebody else, Langley Waller, who does the last two editions. I think those two people, Victor and Alma Green, took something that was so a very simple idea that changed lives and saved lives. The Super 7, Principles to Grow, Win with People, and Be More Creative. Managing your schedule, communication, dealing with criticism, learning how to give criticism, learning how to organize yourself, things that I have learned along the way. That's what's in that book. I'm excited for that bad boy to drop, and it's going to be happening very soon as an audio book, a Kindle, and a hard copy. How many editions were did they publish, and how many did they print with each edition to the best of your ability? What can you tell us? Green Book started publication in 1936. It was published in 1940. They took a break during the war. There was rations. Nobody could, nobody really could take road trips during the war. From 41 to 45, there were no Green Books. There's a 46th edition that comes back, and that's published up until 1960, you know, till Victor Green dies, but Alma takes it over to 63. From 36 to 63, it's their baby. Langley Waller does the last two editions, and Melvin Tapley, his partner. And in terms of how many they were selling, we do have Crisis Magazine, I believe is a reference for this. They have, they say that in 1962, there's over 2 million Green Book sub subscribers. There's other estimates that they were selling about 15,000 a year. Gibraltar Printing, the print shop that printed the early Green Books for the first time and what it means for a black man to walk to Midtown Manhattan. And he walks in and forges this business partnership to have them print his green book. And then Victor Green leaves them soon after because offset printing starts to take off. And he's like, no, I can do a different kind of guide that has more pictures, that has more. And so he was really innovative and took a risk. And they were really sad to lose his business because it was such a good business. Those are things that tell us, you know, that it was 
popular. And although there were nearly a dozen other green, uh, other black traveler guides during the time that from, from the thirties to the seventies, mm-hmm. um, Victor Green's Green Book was the most popular, had the biggest reach, and it was distributed really widely because of his partnership with Esso Gas Stations, which was ExxonMobil today. So he was a real businessman in that regard. You mentioned uh, that Ron gave you two important things, a touchstone for for parts of the book and a narrative thread. Can you define those two things? A touchstone, what did you mean by that uh, for different parts of the book? And then the narrative thread. The touchstone in the sense that it gave, there was an emotional anchor for me in terms of why this book was important. It was kind of like the homing pigeon, the idea that like in a chapter, it's like, is it still is this what this is really about for me? Because he's a, he's the, he was like the person I was writing for when sometimes you'll say books are better written when you're writing, writing to one person rather than trying to write to everyone. And so he was a touchstone in the sense that he was a black man, a dark skinned black man who grew up in Tennessee during Jim Crow and has been, you know, fought in a war. So there was a whole chapter on when the green book comes back after the, the war because it's been out of, of print, out of publication for a while, and what it meant for all these black soldiers coming back fighting World War II and the double V issue. And so I could apply, you know, Ron's story about Vietnam um, and his experience and the conundrum and the confusion behind black men, you know, because Ron was always very patriotic in a sense that but this was a country that didn't give you equal rights or when you came back, you know, how you were treated after the war. So it, it let me grapple with with Ron and the things that I didn't understand about him and his experience or and understood in terms of why he was so angry sometimes or why he didn't trust a lot of white people, frankly. When I started uncovering this history and doing more research in this book and it started to make sense to me why Ron who why he was who he was. So in that way, he was a touchstone. And the narrative thread is that I needed to contextualize the chronology of the Green Books over time because the book looks at the Green Book in a chronological order. But what were the, you know, so if you had that as as an arc, as a storyline in the book, Ron becomes a narrative thread over that. And so, again, his experiences, his um, response to, say, Charlottesville that was happening when I was on the road, my experience with him being on the road and having to protect myself, the irony of that, being in Chicago and thinking, I'm afraid to get out of my car to go to the bathroom. Isn't that ironic that I'm doing a project on the Green Book that made black folks safe on the road? Mm. and then what does Ron have to say about that? Because how does he protect me in this? It, it complicates things when you have all these threads going within a book. Literally, it became so layered that I had to put everything out on index cards and color code them 
I'm talking about Ron and the history, you know, the green book, because there were so many different layers of what I was trying to do. And then to bring the, the narrative thread of today, which is, you know, how does this relate to what we're dealing with today? What are the mirroring kind of experiences that black folks are having? In many ways, the impetus for the Green Book was how to protect black folks from emotional and physical violence in many ways. How did you make the field work work for you? How did you make that work? You're talking about you visited, as you mentioned, almost 4K sites, uh, scouting them. So how did you make it work, the field work, in terms of the travel, um, lodging, food for yourself, paying for those things, and keeping community, as you mentioned, you moved so many times. How did you maintain community, uh, in many ways, sanity, uh, safety? Yeah, thank God. I love being on the road, right? So that, the logistics of that, um, I driving for me is a very meditative experience. Uh, I love the my Google app, I um, there's an option where you can avoid highways. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I always travel like that when I can. About 80% of the time, I avoid highways. And even if it takes me maybe an extra couple of hours that day of driving, that's a different kind of driving for me. Freeway driving is not fun necessarily. It's, you don't see anything on the freeway really. I mean, you see a very different, you see a, you see things, but it's a different America when you get off the roads, uh, off the freeways, and you really go into these back, back streets. You know, sometimes I drive for days and barely even see many cars because I'd be on all these back roads. So that was a whole different experience of, you know, of driving. And then you see really, you know, I would see more Confederate flags, say, in upstate New York. Then I saw driving through the entire state of South Carolina. So that was really informing my sense of what America is, because the, especially because there was a lot of drama going on with the Confederate flag in South Carolina during this time. And, um, and yet, you know, you've got upstate New York who has more than, I even saw more in upstate New York than I saw in Texas. That has to be a lived experience. So I always understood how important it was that I need to be out there on the road driving and going to these sites and then seeing the communities where they're, because most Green Book sites say about 80% are clustered in traditional black neighborhoods that either once were black neighborhoods or that are being, have been so radically gentrified you don't recognize them. Urban renewal, like I said, took a toll on these neighborhoods. So I'd go to a place where you know, the way that I got down to scouting about 30 a day because they were clustered. They were so close together um, most of the time. But sometimes I'd go and there'd be a big freeway right in the middle, a la urban renewal, and there would have been once 20 green book sites. But now it's a big freeway. Capturing those, those real life, uh, the real life scars of government policies that decimated black communities, seeing that over and over again, seeing areas where they sociologists are calling million dollar blocks in places like Chicago, 
where there's just blocks of boarded up buildings because they've essentially rounded up most of the black folks that live there and put them in jail. That's a reality that, again, I think is a civil rights crisis of our time. For me to see that over and over again, I was like, I can't, not, I can't write this book and not write about this issue. That's it for this edition of the Fred Opie Show. Thank you for joining us. Check out the show archive at fredopiespeaks.com, as well as our books and other content. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Check out our show notes where you'll find a way to subscribe to our podcast, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. You'll find links to books discussed on the show, links to our YouTube channel where you can watch the show. If you want to know more about what I'm doing, go to fredopi.com, which is my website. You can see information on the books I've published. There are two blogs that I host there, both a food and an athlete's blog, and there's both a food and an athlete's podcast. The whole archive to both those two podcasts are there. At the bottom of the podcast page, I have links to interviews that I have listened to on other people's podcasts that I would recommend to you. 